All right, good evening. Um, I'm gonna begin by apologizing uh, for the way I look. I came right from the gym um, and this is probably gonna be the case for maybe the last couple of classes. So um, joined a uh, gym, some new members of ours, a boxing gym. So I'll put a link to it uh, in this video if you wanna check it out. They're just the most awesome people and it's a great place and they got uh, evening classes and I went to the 5.30 to 6.30 class. So I came right home from that. and. So, uh, well, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm learning boxing. I'm participating in it. Um, I, uh, yeah, there's a reason. No, you, I, yeah. You look energized. I think it's great. Yeah, no, it was good. It was good. Um, so anyway, but no, I, yeah, I, I thought about, man, if I come back and shower, but I wasn't going to try and be in a hurry. So I figured I'm, I'm with people who would understand my ghastly appearance. So, all right. Um, so we are up to lesson 10, um, God's grace in Holy Communion. We're going to start out by kind of building on what we talked about last week when we introduced uh, our lesson on Holy Baptism, and that is what criteria kind of are we looking for for a sacrament? We'll talk about that tonight and a couple other things, but take a look at the introduction first. Um, Married couples express their love for one another in more than one way. So does our gracious God. Consider the following parallels. A husband and wife say, I love you to one another frequently throughout the day. I forgot to share this. All right. It's not that they wear the phrase out by repeating it over and over. Uh, they use that phrase regularly and with real meaning behind it. At least I hope so. Whenever they say, I love you to each other, they are not expressing a new love, but simply reinforcing the love that they already share for one another. It's not as though when I, I say, I love you to my wife, it's like, whoa, I'm now just realizing this. I actually love you. No, it's not a new love. Um, it's, a, it's a reaffirming of that love that she knows that I have for her. When we read God's word, we hear him say to us, I love you, and I have forgiven your sins in many different ways and at many different times. We call this the message of the gospel, right? The proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. This is God saying to you and to me, I love you, right? Um, and, and so we hear God's love for us expressed in words, okay? Second point, on the day of their wedding, a husband and wife exchange wedding rings. They proudly wear their wedding ring as a visible expression of their love for each other. Their ring is a special one-time gift that says, I love you. In the introduction to the last lesson, baptism was compared to a wedding ring. Baptism is a special one-time gift from God that expresses his forgiving love and commitment toward us. Last one. Here's what we're going to get into tonight. Occasionally, a husband might bring a bouquet of flowers home for his wife. Those flowers are a visible, tangible way of demonstrating the same love that he also they also express to one another in words. When Christians participate in the Lord's Supper, they are receiving the same love and forgiveness God gives through his word. But they are now receiving it in a visible, tangible way. Now, I want to be careful with those analogies. Um, Obviously, a wedding ring costs way more than um, a, a bouquet of flowers. And I don't want anyone to think, okay, well, baptism was the really expensive um, gift that God gave us. 
and the Lord's Supper is kind of just like, a, you know, a bouquet of flowers, not that big a deal. No, they're all the same. That's kind of the point. The point is not to say, you know, um, how big, how expensive, how often. The point is to say this. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he won for and accomplished the forgiveness of sins for the entire world. Question is now, how does what Jesus won on the cross become yours? How is it applied to you? How is it distributed and dispensed to individuals? And the answer to that is through the message of the gospel. Jesus takes, or God takes what Jesus won for us on the cross, and he wraps that accomplishment up in words, and he communicates those words, and he applies that forgiveness to individual people. But God also now does that, not just through words that we hear, but also through visible, tangible, physical means. God now also wraps those words of forgiveness and grace in water, in bread and wine. And so, you know, oftentimes I'll hear people say when, when I talk about the sacraments and they say, well, you know, baptism, Holy Communion, those can't forgive our sins. Only Jesus can. And it's like, okay, true. But how does Jesus communicate to you that your sins are forgiven, that he has you has forgiven your sins. And it always, always, always is in the message of the gospel. But here's the thing. The gospel, this message, is not one that is limited to just audible words. These words, and if you remember last week, and we're gonna we're gonna look at it here also with Holy Communion, if you remember when we talked about baptism. Um, one of the criteria for a sacrament was that it has to be connected to God's word. And that's why, because it is here in water that this word, this message, this gospel is now communicated to you, is now applied to you. And the same thing is going to be the case when it comes to Holy Communion. That love, that forgiveness, what Jesus won for you in his life, death, and resurrection is wrapped up in bread and wine and given to you. And Jesus says, here, here is the forgiveness that I want for you. I want it to be something that you take and eat and drink. And this is the forgiveness that I want for the forgiveness of sins. Okay. So it, a, a lot of Christians try and do this. They try and pit Jesus against the sacraments and they try and make you say, well, it's one or the other. You either have to trust Jesus for salvation or the sacraments. And it's like, no, the Bible does not do that. We do not pit these things against each other. Jesus himself uses, institutes these sacraments as the means by which he gives to us the forgiveness that, yes, only he can win. Right? Absolution is no different. Yep, and absolution is no different. You're right. And we're going to talk about that in our next lesson, right? Um, so you know, kind of want to, I'll get about this. I'll get to this a little bit later in the lesson, but since I'm on a roll, uh, at least in my mind, I am, I'll, I'll kind of make the, the connection here. It's sort of like, if you ask yourself, okay, so you've got this terminal disease and a doctor over in London comes up with the medicine 
that will cure you. Um, what is it that saves your life? Is it the doctor or is it the medicine? And the answer is yes, right? And that's kind of the point. Um, yes, without Jesus, there are no sacraments. This is why another one of the criteria is it has to be instituted by Jesus. We, we don't throw around this word for something that Paul thought was a good idea or something that Peter invented. No, it has to be the doctor himself. It has to be Jesus who says, take and eat. It has to be Jesus who says, go and make disciples by baptizing. He's the one who gives these sacraments their power to do what he says. Um, and so we don't pit the doctor against the medicine. Um, we, we utilize the medicine that the doctor gives us um, in the gospel. And the gospel comes now, not just through the audible word, but also through the visible means of grace in the sacraments. Okay. So hope that's what I'm trying to communicate with these, this kind of introduction is just to simply say, it all comes back to the same thing. Whether we're talking about the, the Bible whether we're talking about baptism, whether we're talking about Holy Communion, all of it is to say this. These are the various ways God has promised to communicate and distribute his loving forgiveness to people. Okay? Um, so that's what we're going to look for or look at in this lesson. Lesson goal, bottom of the page, our study of the sacraments continues as we learn about Holy Communion. We're going to discover, one, how Holy Communion fits the criteria of a sacrament. Two, what we receive in Holy Communion. Three, how we are to receive it. And four, with whom we are to receive it. And I think we'll get through probably two or three of those tonight. We'll see. Um, we'll also note some of the different teachings about Holy Communion that can be found in other Christian churches, okay? So we're going to begin, top of page 72, by looking at Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. So remember the, the context here of what we're looking at. This is Jesus on... Maundy Thursday or Holy Thursday. Um, this is the night that Jesus was betrayed, the night before Jesus is crucified. Um, so the, the day before Good Friday, a couple days before Easter Sunday, and it is Jesus celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples one last time. So Matthew 26, verse 17, here's what we read. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, what do you want us to, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Jesus replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him the teacher says my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely not I, Lord. But Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. 
The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink uh, of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All right. I just can't imagine the... How Paul they were for him to announce that he's going to be betrayed. They they weren't in any position at that point. I think that they thought this was a good celebration, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there. You know, this was one of the high points of the Jewish year was to celebrate the Passover, and yeah, to be shocked by this uh, this declaration that Jesus makes. You know, I I find it interesting. You know, so many people struggle with this idea of the, the foreknowledge of Jesus, that he's aware, that he knows that Judas is going to betray him, he even goes to the point of saying, it would be better for you if you had not been born. Um, and yet, um, they want to try and somehow make it sound like, well, uh, Judas had been predestined, predetermined to betray Jesus. And therefore, you know, there was, there was no hope for him. Um, and therefore, you know, what an awful thing for God to do to someone like Judas. And yet here's the reality. How many times just in this evening did Jesus call Judas to repent? Here's one, right? I mean, why, why do you think Jesus is saying this, right? Um, is it just to wow everybody? No. Um, he, he looks at Judas and says, um, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus says, yes, it is you. And I wonder kind of what that look was like and what kind of pause took place after that. Because it's sort of like, you know, if you've ever had a friend or a family member, somebody who is like on a destructive path, right? And, and you have seen this before, or maybe they've even done this before, and you know how this is going to end. You know where they're headed. And you say to them, look, this is what's going to happen. Why do you say that? Is it just to rub their nose in it? No, it's to say, stop, right? This is what Jesus is doing. Um, and then, of course, we looked at it back in our lesson on the humiliation of Jesus when we focused on his crucifixion and his passion. Um, and what, what, does, what does Jesus do when Judas uh, uh, betrays him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember how Jesus addresses Judas? Remember what title he gave him? Friend. Friend. Do what you came to do. Right? Um, what is Jesus saying there? Right? Um, all of this is Jesus still trying to call him to repent, and yet he doesn't. Um, so... Yeah, um, a couple of things to look at here. Just a, a, a note, uh, you see there on the top of page 72, this is one of four places where the institution 
of Holy Communion is recorded in Scripture. Um, it's here in Matthew 26, and then in Mark 14, Luke 22, and then 1 Corinthians 11. And if you're wondering why it's not in the Gospel of John, it's because John records everything else that Jesus said in that upper room on Thursday night, right? John has like five chapters um, of, of discourse that Jesus gives. This is where we get the high priestly prayer from Jesus. This is where we hear Jesus um, make the promise that he's going away to prepare a place for them. This is where we hear Jesus promise them, um, you know, that the, 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 the counselor will come, right? I'm going away, but if I go away, I'm going to send the, the counselor for you, right? So John gives us all of this, and it's just a good reminder. We talked about this in our couple lessons ago on the Bible. It's just a good reminder that not a single one of the Gospels ever claims to be the be-all, end-all, definitive story of the life of Jesus. They're not meant or intended to be taken individually, but as a unit, as really all of Scripture is, right? Um, and so you, you are going to get the, the most complete account of the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus in all four Gospels, not just in one, right? Um, so take a look at a couple of those, those bullet points on the top of page 72. Jesus instituted a Holy Communion in the middle of the Passover celebration that he shared with his disciples. We learned a bit about the Old Testament Passover festival in lesson five. There are a number of connections between the Passover and the Lord's Supper that make Jesus' timing particularly interesting. We'll note some of the connections as we walk through the, this reading in class. So what are some things you remember about the Passover? What, what, what was kind of the context? What was going on? This was the final plague, right? That the Lord said, this is finally going to convince Pharaoh to let my people go. The, the water into blood, the gnats, the flies, the lo uh, locusts, the, the frogs, the darkness, the hail, none of those things convinced Pharaoh, but the Lord said, this will. And it would be the death of the firstborn. And that night, Pharaoh did lose his firstborn son. Um, and God said, the angel of death is going to go all throughout Egypt. And the way that you are going to avoid this destruction, this death, is by taking a lamb. And remember, it wasn't just any kind of lamb. It had to be a one-year-old male lamb without blemish or defect. You had to kill it drain its blood, take that blood, paint the door frames of your home. And when the angel saw this on your home, he passed over your house, right? Death and judgment passed over your house. And that is the meaning of the, the word Passover. But here is, I, I mentioned it at the time. I said, we're going to come back to this in our lesson on Holy Communion, because what did the Israelites then do with that lamb? They didn't take it and just throw it out in the streets. They didn't toss it on the fire. Um, what did they do with it? They cooked it and they ate it. This was the main course of the Passover meal. And so what is the connection now? Who is Jesus really? John the Baptist tells us in John chapter 1 verse 29, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of those Old Testament lambs 
whether they were killed for the Passover, whether they were sacrificed at the temple, all of those Old Testament lambs were pointing ahead to the one-time ultimate sacrifice that Jesus himself, the Lamb of God, would fulfill. And so it really is not a stretch then for Jesus to say what? He's instituting a new, a greater meal for his disciples, for his followers to eat. It's not just going to be some lamb. That whole sacrificial system is over with, right? Jesus has said, I've come to fulfill that. I've come to complete it. So Jesus comes and he is about to be the sacrificial lamb. And so what does he do with his body and his blood? He doesn't say, I want you to take it and paint it over the door frames of your homes. He says, just as you ate the Passover lamb, as, as uh, the lamb that died in order for you to be delivered, in order for you to be saved, so also now take and eat the body, take and drink the blood of the lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. Why this would be, you know, if, if you're reading the Old Testament, if you're well-versed and you understand the Passover and its significance, um, it, it really should not be any kind of shock or surprise that this is what Jesus comes to, right? Um, that you eat the very lamb who gave up its life for your salvation. And now we're done with the animals. We're done with the, the sacrifices. This is what Jesus has come to fulfill. And so he gives to us not the body and blood of a lamb, but the body and blood of God himself. Okay. So that's the connection um, of the Passover. In verse 26, Jesus takes some of the bread prepared for the Passover feast. He spoke a prayer of thanksgiving, broke the bread to distribute it to his disciples and told them, this is my body. In verses 27 through 29, Jesus took one of the cups of grape wine used in the Passover feast, had each of the disciples drink from the cup and said, this is my blood. That phrase there, that line um, in verse 29, fruit of the vine, that was an ancient Semitic expression that meant grape wine. Some people try and use that phrase to say, well, when Jesus said fruit of the vine, he was opening that to mean that any kind of fruit or any kind of juice that comes from a, a vine can be used in Holy Communion. It's like, no, that's not what he was doing. Uh, in fact, if Jesus had used the word wine, then there could have been a number of different options that would have been available. But the fact that he used this Semitic expression, fruit of the vine, everyone would have known what, exactly what he was talking about. Um, and I say that to, to just make a point of the fact that, so here at use grape wine in Holy Communion. Um, now, that's a problem for some people, even some Christians, because they say, um, well, it's sinful to drink wine, to drink alcohol. Sorry, the Bible never says that. Um, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, great example, right? Um, that uh, Jesus uh, provides wine. And in fact, we see that in Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. If you read Psalm 104, it's a really beautiful psalm that just has this long list of things that God has made to bless his creation. And lo and behold, you get to verses uh, 14 and 15, 
And what do we see? Um, he, the Lord, makes wine that gladdens the heart of man. Um, and so, you know, alcohol, wine is, is just like every other good gift that God gives. Um, the gift itself is good. The way that we use it is often not. That's the problem. So wine is no different than sex, is no different than money, right? Is no different than food. All of those things can be used, uh, misused and abused to the point that it becomes sinful. But it's not wine's fault that I drank an entire bottle of it. Um, it's not sex's fault that I did not follow the guidelines that God gives in the sixth commandment. Um, it's not money's fault that I'm greedy for it, right? This is all in my heart, my problem, right? Um, and so wine, alcohol, not a problem, not, not sinful. What I do with it, how I abuse it can be and is, okay? Um, two miracles take place. In, in Holy Communion, in the Lord's Supper. The first is this. In a miraculous way, Jesus actually gives us his body and blood in Holy Communion. Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. Now, I understand. And people are right when they say, well, it tastes like bread. It looks like bread. You put it under a microscope, you're not going to see DNA with little crosses on it. No, it's bread, it's wine. But Jesus says, this is what it is. And so we trust him, that Jesus can speak a thing into existence. He can make a thing that looks like one thing and declare it to be something else. Um, so just a really simple example of that um, would be like, if I owed you money, and I came up to you and I handed you an envelope and said, here's the money I owe you. It would be like you ripping it up and going, I'm not an idiot, pastor. This is just an envelope and throwing it away. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. It, it was an envelope, but inside really was the money. Um, and you just ripped it up, right? Um, so, so here's what Jesus is saying. This is my body. Um, and there in with under the bread is what Jesus says. Um, it is a miracle. And Jesus very easily could have said, this bread represents my body. This wine symbolizes my blood. He could have very easily said that. It wasn't like these were words that didn't exist in, 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 in the Aramaic language or in the Greek language. Um, remember the context, right? We, we, we talked about this, or at least it, it's in the end of uh, the, 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 the lesson on the Bible. And I gave you there some pointers on things to do and things not to do when it comes to biblical interpretation, right? This explains why, how can all of us Christians read the same Bible and yet end up with different conclusions? Well, it comes down to biblical, biblical interpretation. And when it comes to Holy Communion, um, context, as, as is true with all of scripture, context is key, right? What is the context of um, the, the setting in which Jesus speaks these words and institutes this meal? Now, Jesus spoke in symbolic language regularly 
throughout his ministry. And, and I mean, it just, just use the parables as an example, right? He tells a story, but underneath that story, he wants you to see and understand something else. So I, I get it. I'm not going to say that everything Jesus ever meant, everything that he ever said, he meant to, to be taken literally. I'm not saying that. But understand and recognize the context. This is the last time that Jesus is going to meet with and instruct his disciples before his crucifixion. In fact, what a lot of the, the ancient church fathers and, and, and specifically um, Lutheran um, church fathers, what they refer to the, the words of institution of Jesus here, um, they, they refer to this as Jesus' last will and testament. Jesus is going away, but he says, Here's what I'm leaving for you. My body, my blood. This is what I'm giving you. Now, if you've ever written a will, or if you have ever received something from someone else's will, you understand the language in a will has to be crystal clear and ironclad. So, so if I'm writing out my will for my children, and I want to leave them our, our white minivan, I can't, I can't say something like, I bequeath to my children the white stallion out in the driveway. What does that mean? I mean, most people would probably guess what it means, but maybe I had a horse that no one knew about, right? No, I'm going to say the 2018 Chrysler Pacifica minivan parked in our driveway with, with black leather interior um, and third row seating. This is what I'm leaving to you, right? This is not the time or the place for Jesus to speak in some flowery, picturesque language. Jesus is very clear, and he speaks arguably the most simple sentences he ever did in his ministry. This is this. When you receive this, this is also what you're getting. And there's no reason for us to try and do some sort of exegetical, um, you know, uh, acrobatic maneuvers to try and figure out, well, I wonder what Jesus really meant by that, because he couldn't possibly mean what he says, but he does, and we hold him to that, okay, and, and we recognize there's a reason we call this a miracle, um, Jesus speaks something into existence that that was not, right, Bread is his body, wine is his blood. That's the first miracle. The second one is this, that just as Jesus does in baptism, so he does in communion. Jesus offers and gives the forgiveness of sins. Um, this is the whole reason. Think about it. Why does Jesus come from heaven to earth in flesh and blood? Why does God come in the flesh to earth? It's not just to live out as an example for people. It's not just to show us what godly living looks like. It is to, by his own words, to lay down his life, to sacrifice his life for the forgiveness of and for the sins of the world. So then what purpose would Jesus have in giving to us that very same body and blood? 
other than what he says, other than what he used that body and blood to accomplish, to give us the forgiveness of sins. Again, a miracle. I get it. Um, but it is Jesus himself who declares it to be so. Okay? Um, the accounts of Luke and 1 Corinthians also note that Jesus intended for us to repeat this meal that he established the night before his death. Um, do this in remembrance of me. Sort of just like the Old Testament, um, um, uh, you know, Israelite people, they repeated the Passover meal year after year. It was a, re it was a, a repeated thing. Um, and so whereas baptism which is, is sort of analogous, is sort of a connected to circumcision in the Old Testament. Thankfully, you can only be circumcised once, right? Um, this is not a thing that you do every other day, every other year even. Um, you do it once and for all. Baptism is the same way. Holy Communion, like the Passover, is one that is to be repeated. Um, and so we'll talk about that uh, coming up. Jesus says, uh, we just read this in Matthew, this is my blood of the covenant. So the question is now, well, what covenant is Jesus making with us? If you remember, a covenant is a, it's a, it's an agreement. It's a contract, right? And typically it's one between two parties. Um, and, and God's first covenant with his people was what? It was the Ten Commandments. God said, here you go, the 10 uh, words that I'm giving you, you keep these commandments and you will be my people and I will be your God and I will bless you. Well, how well did that first covenant work out? Moses didn't even make it into the camp before he heard the sound, before he saw the, the idol worship of the, the golden calf and he smashes the, the 10 commandment, the two stone tablets into pieces, right? Very picturesque for what the Israelites had done. That bilateral covenant is one that God's people needed to see and understand and recognize this will never work. You, you can't go tit for tat with God. You can't say, God, will scratch your back a little bit as if he needed something and then he'll scratch yours. No, it all has to come from God. It all has to be this one-sided unilateral covenant. And if you fast forward, to Jeremiah chapter 34, or is it 31? I think it's maybe 31, where, where the Lord says, I will make a new covenant with my people. And what is it? He says, I will write my law in their hearts instead of writing it on two stone tablets. And he says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. There was no... If people do this, then I'll do this. It was just simply saying, here is the promise that I make to you. I am going to forgive you. Because you are a sinful and stubborn people, if I want you to be my people, then the only way that's going to happen is if it all falls on me. If the responsibility simply comes back for me to forgive you. So what does Jesus say here? This is the covenant. And what does God use to sign that covenant, to seal that covenant, but the blood of his own son? This is the blood of my 
uh, covenant. And we get a, a, another picture of that in Romans 11. I love this. Paul writes, and this is my covenant with them. Jesus is, is talking when I take away their sins. And he's referencing Jeremiah there. Um, this is God's covenant. So when Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, he's saying, here, it, here I am to accomplish the very thing that God promised, forgiveness. And he doesn't just shed that blood. He doesn't just die on the cross. But he says, here's how it becomes yours. Take and eat, take and drink. Okay. So um, when it comes to Holy Communion, how does this fit the criteria that we looked at last time with baptism? Well, fill in the blank. The Lord's Supper was instituted by? Yep. Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper uses earthly elements of bread and wine. The Lord's Supper offers and gives the forgiveness of sins. And in granting the forgiveness of sins, Jesus connects Holy Communion to his, to his word. Again, there it is. It's the promise. It's the declaration. Yes, that only Jesus can make because only he can, can, can forgive sins. But he gives that declaration. He attaches that promise. He, 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 he takes that word and he wraps it up in these earthly means and he says, here it is, right? So, so this is why we, we talked about, this is why one of the important criteria of the sacrament is it's connected to the word of Jesus. And what is that word? Take and eat, take and drink. Um, the words of institution, right? Spoken over these elements. All right, what, uh, what questions do you have so far? Okay. Sure. Yeah, so let's go on to the top of page 73 and look at the comparative teachings um, on communion. You see the first column there just simply says who teaches it, um, what is received, and then finally, what is the purpose, okay? Um, first, here is, is again, uh, what we see the Bible teaching. What is received? How would you fill in the blank? The bread and wine blank, the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. Yeah, are right? Um, and the name of this doctrine, this understanding is the real presence. We believe that the body and blood of Jesus really are present under the bread and wine for us to eat and to drink. What is the purpose? Yeah. Um, Jesus says, right, the forgiveness of sins. And here's the thing. What happens every time that God says, I love you? What happens every time that God says, I forgive you? What does that do to my faith and my trust and my hope in him? It strengthens it, right? Um, sort of just like, um, you know, every time my wife tells me, I love you, it strengthens my love for her. Um, and, and so, you know, kind of the opposite thing happens. Um, it would be foolish for a husband to say, 
you know, 10 years into their marriage. Well, you know, I don't have to tell my wife I love you anymore because I told it to her on our wedding day. Um, and that should be good enough, right? Well, yeah, but she needs to hear that again, right? Um, and you should say it again because this is what is going to strengthen her love for you. Um, if you have that love for her, then, then communicate it. What, what else would you want to do with it, right? Um, so this is what God is doing. So again, we talked about this in baptism. You go back to this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the fork in the road, so to speak, where Christians will start to kind of separate on the sacraments. And that is how do you answer this question? Who is doing the work of the sacrament? Is it something that I am doing for God or something that he is doing for me? And when you see this, what is the purpose? That's going to be the key. Is this something where we talk about, here is what God is doing for me, forgiving my sins, strengthening my faith, or is this going to be something where, 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 where somebody says, this is what I'm offering to God. This is what I'm doing for God. Um, that's where you're going to see the separation, okay? The second, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, the bread and wine, they would say, turn into or become the true body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, that might not sound like a huge change or difference from our, and I would say in the grand scheme of things, you're right. Other than the fact that the Bible still tells us the bread and wine are still present. So I would say it still isn't following um, what we see in scripture. However, the main thing is not the bread and wine, but rather the body and blood of Jesus. And, and they, they, they confess that. And that's, we're going to get to the second part. The, the, what is the purpose is really where we begin to see a difference in and sort of a breakdown in what the Roman Catholic church teaches. Um, they would say that they re sacrifice Jesus or at the very least, they would say they represent the sacrifice of Jesus to God. So, so again, this is why, um, this is, this is one of the main reasons why they call their ministers, their pastors, priests, because what do priests do? They offer sacrifices. Here's what the priest is doing. Um, he is offering an unbloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and if you remember back in lesson five, when we talked about the three offices of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, we talked about what was kind of the main responsibility of the priest, and that was to offer sacrifices. And we said, okay, so what makes Jesus different? What makes Jesus better? And we looked at this passage in the book of Hebrews that says, here it is. All of the Old Testament priests had to make sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice without end, first for their own sins, and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus sacrificed once and for all when he sacrificed himself, right? So the fact that there is even a representing of the sacrifice or a re-sacrifice of Jesus is to say what about his sacrifice on the cross at Calvary? It wasn't enough, right? And that's pretty serious. Um, yeah, the second part, they would say, 
Um, we re-sacrifice Jesus in the Lord's Supper and express our thanks by our participation. This is actually a very biblical thing. There's nothing wrong with this. This is actually where the, um, the, uh, the word that they use uh, when they, they refer to the, the sacrament of Holy Communion, they'll call it the Eucharist. It comes from the Greek word to give thanks. And, and it's part of actually what we see in the words of institution. What do we hear? Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to his disciples. And that gave thanks is oikaristo, the Eucharist, right? So it's a very fitting title for it. But again, I would say, and, and, and from the, the Lutheran perspective, we would say to give thanks to God is a byproduct of Holy Communion, not a primary purpose, right? It is what naturally happens, what naturally flows out of the Christian after receiving the gift that God gives to him. So this is why we, we have still the prayer of thanksgiving. It's the closing prayer that we speak every Sunday. We thank you, God. For the foretaste of this heavenly banquet that you have given us to eat and drink in this sacrament, right? We offer that prayer of thanksgiving um, because this is what naturally happens when someone gives you a life-changing gift, right? But it's not the primary purpose. Um, so, so it's a fine biblical thing, but I wouldn't put it in that category, okay? Then finally... Um, and I, I, I need to change this one of these years. Um, I put reformed there. That probably isn't, isn't fair. Um, it really probably should be evangelical Christianity. That's kind of more your, your non-denominational, your Baptist, um, your our, kind of Arminian background. The reformed fit this to a degree, but, but the, the reformed would actually say something a little different and, and maybe even should necessitate a fourth box. Um, but they, they would agree in this sense, um, what is received the bread and wine represent the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It, it is not really present the body and blood of Jesus. It can't be right. It's a, it's a physical impossibility. This is the, the way that Calvin would explain it, right? Um, Jesus is in heaven. How can he be on millions of altars around the world every Sunday morning? And number one, and number two, if it really was the body and blood of Jesus, we would have consumed him by now. There'd be nothing left, right? Um, and so the, 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 the human reason over the simple word of God says, I have to understand the meaning behind the words. What does Jesus really mean to communicate here? Because he can't simply mean that this bread and this wine really is his body and blood. So it represents, okay? Um, what is the purpose then? Again, two, two good things, right? They would say, we remember Jesus. True enough. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Be given, shed for you. All reformed. Yes. And it said, do this in remembrance. You caught it. That's intentional. Yeah, uh, there, I picked that up. Yeah. Yeah. P Peter made mention of, on the front of our altar, it says given and shed for you, where on many reformed altars, and sadly, a lot of Lutheran altars too, yeah, says do this in remembrance of me. Um, 
And I'm not going to say it's wrong because this is what Jesus said. But think about the difference of what is communicated. One is very much law. One is very much gospel. Right? Yeah, big time. Um, and so, it, yeah, it makes me a little, it, I don't want to say, I just don't like it when I see do this in remembrance of me on the front of the altar, because that then becomes the, imp the impetus, right? That this is the reason we're doing this is because Jesus told us to. You're missing the whole point, right? That's That, much like the Thanksgiving, is a byproduct, right? In receiving Holy Communion, I am brought to remember Jesus. I am brought to give him thanks. I am brought to, 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 to praise and worship and honor him. But it's only because of the gift given to me in the body and blood of my Savior. here what five and a half years yeah i'm 78 so in by the way i feel all those years i've really been cheated <laughs> i mean it, it breaks my heart to think that i yeah i'm wandering in the desert there for all those years well i would say peter here's the good thing if you had died before you you came here at the age of 73 you'd still be in heaven okay right but you'd still be in heaven i feel so much more connected though yeah i mean I, I can't wait for communion on Sundays. Yeah. I, I wish we had every other week. I come yeah. on Wednesday evening for it's, communion. You know, it's it's yeah. available whenever you want it. It's, yeah. It's a whole different perspective. Of, right. Uh, I, mean, I honestly can't remember ever hearing a pastor tell me this is forgiveness and strengthening of your faith. Right. Was the communion? Yeah. It just never was said. And I just remember and uh, yeah, be thankful. That yep. was it. And I love how Luther, um, in the small catechism, right, his focus is on two words. Um. He 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 wants you to walk away with and emphasize for you. Those are the words, right? Given and poured out. Why? Why does Jesus give me, why does Jesus give his body? Why does Jesus shed his blood? It's for you, right? That's gospel. That's grace. It's for you. And so when it came to what are we going to put on the front of our altar, I don't, there was, there was just no debate. I've had you comments know. from friends of mine, you know, when we first put this together yeah i took pictures and sent it and they yeah. go, well why did you do what you did <laughs> and then i said well that's a great opportunity now yep. witness i'll tell yep. you why well and we'll get into the passage on the next page um when the when the apostle paul in first corinthians 11 says whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes um so so even receiving Holy Communion is not just an individual personal thing between me and Jesus. It is a declaration of the gospel itself. You proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes. And so this for you, for you echoes out from the Lord's table, right? Um, and so this is why, you know, when people want to, you know, try and get into this argument and say, well, we shouldn't have Holy Communion every Sunday, 
because it'll be a turnoff for for visitors, for people. I, this is the first thing that I, and I just kind of started doing this instead of getting into the semantics and arguments of, you know, well, Jesus said often and how often is often enough. No, that's the verse that even when you celebrate Holy Communion, if you're not taking it, what is still being proclaimed? The gospel. You are proclaiming the death of Christ until he comes. And so even when people are not able to participate, this, this eating and drinking, this, this, this sacrament, this meal, is a proclamation of Christ for you. And so why would we ever want to gather in this house and not proclaim that message in that meal? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Where are we at? How, how many guys who educated this uh, John Calvin? I know he, he wasn't a priest, uh, you know, in that sense. He was more of a theologian. So how did he get so many people to believe all that? Because um, Peter asked, how, how did kind of Calvin get so many people? And you know this, Peter, and I, I think I've told you this. The smartest Christians I know are Reformed. They are the smartest Christians I know. Because this is, this is why it's because it all makes sense. At the end of the day, Calvin could explain everything to such a degree that it made logical sense. And so it allows you to still be um, super analytical, um, super well-educated, well-spoken, and yet also be a Christian. You know, I look back at Archie's role, and uh, yeah. you know, one of his takes I listened to. I mean, he he jumped all over this thing, this Luther. He said maybe Luther had more than Calvin. Yeah, he he wasn't. He was writing that tense. He oh, was, I I I yeah. I think with the exception of um, maybe kind of the the, the double predestination. I mean, R.C. Sproul was as close to a Lutheran as as any yeah. reformed I've ever met. Yeah. Yeah. He always said, I remember when he did the lecture, he says, Well, you know, I know I got my Lutheran friends in here too. Yeah. No, I mean, it, one, of, one of many people I can't wait to talk to in heaven, for sure, is R.C. Sproul. I mean, uh, you know, he was really gifted. Totally. A, a, a wonderful gift to the church. Um, thousands, maybe even millions of people will be in heaven. Yep. Thousands and thousands, maybe even millions of people will be in heaven because of his teaching, right? Because the because the Lord Jesus used him to to preach Christ. You understood it wasn't just all very theological and a lot of he put it down to the average guy. Yeah. As as much as I love, you know, as much as I love um how well uh, R.C. Sproul understood the gospel, I think I loved his law preaching even more. Um, just, you know, the whole, you know, what's wrong with you people? I love that question, right? I, <laughs> you know, he's God looking down and saying, what's wrong with you people? Like, that's just a, a cut to the heart. Yeah, I don't know. There's a lot wrong with me. Um, so, but, um, all right, well, we'll stop there. It's about eight o'clock and I don't want to rush through um, the next section. That's okay. It'll be good. Uh, we'll talk about participating in the Lord's Supper and properly receiving Holy Communion with others um, next week. And then we'll kind of wrap up with, like we did in baptism, some frequently asked questions, um, and then we'll we'll be on uh, to lesson thirteen. So, all right.
thanks everybody for coming tonight and I will see you next week. Bye. Thank you.